Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics. And Marissa, you're back. I am. I'm back. You look very rested. Thank you. And yeah. more tan than when I well, left. Yeah. You were yeah. Uh, in Kauai? I was, yeah. 10 yeah. days in Kauai. Ooh, that sounds cool. I've never been there. It's so beautiful. Recommend? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Have you been to Maui? No, I have not. I've oh, only okay. been to Kauai and the Big Island. Oh, I went oh. two years ago. So yeah, I'd like to visit. Yeah, Chris, have you ever been? And of course, we got Marissa nope. Di Natale and Chris Dorides. Uh, I should have introduced you, but everyone knows that. So, Chris, have you been to Hawaii? I have not. Nope. Yeah, Marissa, let me ask you this: You live in California, so it's it's only like a five hour flight. Yeah. To, if you're out in the wet on the East Coast, is it worth? Do you think taking the 10, what is it, 10 and 12 hour flight to, to get out to Hawaii? Or would you just go to the Caribbean? If I would you, go to Hawaii. Yeah. You would. Oh, you would. Yeah. Okay. I, you know, what's interesting is because obviously I'm from the East Coast, grew up there. I've only been in California for eight years, but I was shocked when I moved here how everybody in Southern California goes to Hawaii regularly. Like it, yeah, it is such really. a strong linkage between, yeah. yeah. I mean, I know people that have houses there that go there every year. And it's just so strange coming from the East Coast because, like, I didn't know any growing up. I didn't know anyone that ever went to Hawaii. Right? right People right. would look at me like I had three yeah. heads because I'd never been to Hawaii. Yeah. But yeah, it's such a long trip from the East Coast. You usually have to lay over in LA or San Francisco, Francisco. And spend a night, and then go. But from here, it's five hours. So yeah, it's, yeah. But I would. It's different from. It's definitely different from the Caribbean. So oh, yeah. Worth yeah going. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, it's good to have you back, and good to have Thank Chris you. back. He was he was off in the uh, yeah the, know, other, the hills of uh, Italy. The other so yeah, the other direction. Yep. <clears throat> and we got a great podcast. We uh, we're going to turn to uh, Matt Robeson of Beyond Politics uh, here in a, in a few minutes. Before but before we do, um, I want to talk about this week's economic data and the Fed meeting, and a lot to talk about there. A lot to digest. So, and I'm not sure what you guys are focused on, but maybe Marissa, I'll, I'll start with you of, of all the things that happened this past week on the economic front, you know, what would you call out? Well, there's a lot of data to talk about. Yeah. So I uh -huh. want to, I don't want to steal anybody's statistic, <laughs> but I mean, we got readings on two readings on consumer confidence, wages, the housing market. We got a lot of data and nearly all of it. Good. Like quite good. I think, um, Maybe Which too good. Perhaps isn't <laughs> too good. I, I well, we'll have to come back to that. I don't want to know GDP, what that means. Right, GDP growing two point four percent. So it all good data. The Fed had a meeting. They did what we expected them to do: raise rates by a quarter point. The communication, I think, was not surprising around that. They certainly left it open to more rate hikes. They're looking at the data. They're focused on inflation and wait. You know, they kept hammering. One thing in the Fed statement I was noting was how many times they said two percent inflation target. Because one thing people are are asking me a lot when I go out is, do you think they really stick to two percent? Yeah. You know, would they be happy with with something like two and a half, three percent? But I think in the first two paragraphs of that statement, they mentioned the two percent target like three or four times. Um, so, so yeah, trying to make, trying to hammer the point yeah. that we're, we're, we're focused on too. Yeah. Sure. And, and, right. and brought up inflation expectations specifically mm -hmm. as, as one that they're watching. So, mm -hmm. 
All right, let me ask it this way. Um, of all the data that came out this week, and you, you, know, you mentioned it, GDP, the employment cost index, which measure of wages. We got uh, data on consumer spending, income, and of course, inflation, the consumer mm-hmm. expenditure deflator. That's the measure of inflation. The Fed is targeting core, the core X food and energy uh, yeah. PCE deflator. Uh, you got housing statistics. Uh, we, our own Moody's Analytics repeat sales. House price index came out this week. I mean, it's a gazillion things. Anything that wasn't good from a perspective of I want inflation to come in so that it stops the Fed from raising rates and and the economy is continuing to grow and avoiding recession. Any any statistic that. We got durable goods. We got trade. We got like a, a lot of kinds of stuff. Anything in there that, and the answer could be no. I'm just asking. I think if you dig into some of the detail of some of these things, you could point, like for example, in the GDP report, corporate profits fell again in the latest quarter. There's been three or four quarters of declines in corporate profits. But, um, but that, no, no, wait. That they didn't release corporate corporate profits for Q2. No, right? no. They, they no. revised Q1. They revised, right? yes, yes. Because the, the profits come out next month. It's lagged one month. You know, yeah, right? yeah. Okay. So there's been three quarters, I think. Of, you're right. It, it wasn't for the, the current quarter. Yep. But, um, oh, so you're really digging. Yeah. Yeah. Jobless claims are falling back from where yeah. they were too. Um, Jobless claims being sure. window on layoffs and they're back yeah. down again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Chris can name five things that are is bad. that yeah. too good? Like the jobless claims, is that too good? Right? Is the Fed going to look at that and say, "Well, this is not a cooling economy. There's still risk here." I don't know because um, you know wage growth is clearly coming in from well, the ECI report. Is it good enough though? Right. So we had the um, employment cost index. That's the one I would yeah pick out. Right, four and a half percent year over year. Yeah, it's 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 coming in. Is it coming in fast enough, strong enough uh, to sway their opinion? I don't yeah. know. I mean, it's consistent with uh, PCE deflators coming down. Like all, pretty much every measure of inflation is heading in the correct direction. Well, well Chris, let, let me ask you. Yeah, give me your you know the, the all this data. What's your interpretation of of what it said and what it means? So all good numbers, right? Yeah. Things are hard to say that anything is uh, going off the rails here uh, by any uh, means. But it, again, I come to this question, I think that the Fed is going to try to address, which is, is it good enough? Is it fast enough? Right? Yeah, sure. It's going in the right direction. We know that the first part of getting inflation down is gonna, was going to be relatively easy. Now we're going to start to go into that, I guess, seventh inning where it becomes much more difficult. We see oil prices you know, stabilizing, actually coming up a little bit. So risks of another shock are, are still out there. And you can't fall back on some of the other deflationary forces that we had in play, like the, the supply chains getting worked out. That's done, right? So now we're going to- Not, not the really. Real work begins. I, I push back on that. I mean, still, we got vehicle prices that are going to decline. That's supply chain related, right? We got you know uh, a lot of many multifamily homes coming to completion- that they got all bottled up because of supply chain issues. So I'm not, I'm not, but the sure house I, prices to your point are, you know, they back up again. Right. So, yeah. right. I'm oh, sorry. I shouldn't have stopped you. I no, no, that, you. no, 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 no. 
Yeah. yeah so uh, I think he's still, I, All right, look, I, let me I think you. it's too early to unfurl the mission accomplished banner, right? That's, oh, of course. Of course. That's my point. Yeah, right? Well, yeah, no, it's you look at this data. Sure. Yeah. But okay. Let me ask you this of all the statistics, which, which one would you point to as being the most worrisome for you? I think I, employment cost. I think it's the, uh, right really? now it's wages okay. that we're going to be laser focused on. Right. Yeah. Right. All right. I, I can't take it, it anymore. It's, <laughs> it, it's unambiguously good data. Come on. It's unambiguously good. Yeah. Is it where you want it to, you know, be to, is it right on target? No, but it's screaming. Everything is heading back to the feds target in a, a reasonably graceful way. Right. I mean, the employment cost index is, you know, year over year, 4.5 down from five and a half to six, it's clearly decelerating and you need to get it back to three and a half. And if we get that in the next year, is that what's wrong with that? That feels pretty good to me. Inflation is coming in. The, the, the core consumer expenditure deflator is coming in. It's 4.1 now year over year. And I'm not, I'm not going to go into too many more statistics because I don't want we're going to play the statistics game in a second, but it's clearly, you know, coming in, uh, you, you know, got consumer confidence has improved. So the cons that suggests consumers are going to hang tough. The consumer spending data that came out, that looked really good. It's, you know, the saving rate is stable. Uh, you know, it, uh, we still, down a little like bit. still was it down a little bit? Four yeah. three, four point yeah. three. Oh, I don't, I don't want to take too many statistics. Oh no, <laughs> but that feels like it's in the four to four and a half yeah, percent range. Right. It was bouncing around somewhere in there. Um, you know, the GDP number, it's like okay, you know, it's right with the economy's potential year over year. It's a little bit below the economy's potential. Uh, gosh, it just everything, everything was durable goods. I mean. Businesses are investing. They're not pulling back. And we want them to invest, right? Because that goes to sure. long productivity growth. The trade numbers look pretty good. I mean, it looks like the trade balance is stabilized. Inventories no longer adding to growth or subtracting growth. It feels like inventories are back to where they need to be. I mean, I, I, that's a, that's a, that week of data that we got, it was like, oh, could you have asked, literally asked for a better set of data? I, I don't, I, you know, given the, you know, the environment that we're in, it's very hard to do that. Very, in my view, it felt, you know, very good. Uh, it felt pretty good. You want to push back on anything I just said? No, I, except I that the script is still being written. I, I agree. Yeah, it's still, exactly. Still Current written. situation. Yeah. Backward looking data. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah, there's still, I, I hope I'm, I, you know, yeah. Pay me as the bear, but I don't want to be the bear, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying that the risks are out there, and you know, yeah, four point one percent core PC, great, but still very far from two, right? So, okay, okay, all right, fair enough. On the uh, on the Fed, um, we uh, have no more uh, rate increases in our forecast in our baseline of forecast in the middle of the distribution of possible outcomes that. This last rate hike is the end of the story, the so-called terminal rate, the highest rate, five and a quarter to five and a half percent. We don't have rates coming in until this time next year, really, uh, because we're, we, I, I don't think the bar is pretty high for them to actually cut rates. I think they need to get inflation all the way back into to their target before they do that. And, it, and by our forecast, it takes about a year to get there. And I think our forecast now is consistent with market expectations. Uh, 
that's a question if you guys know the answer to it. And then that, the other question is, is that sound right to you? I mean, do you think that that outlook for the Fed make is that consistent with your own expectations for you know monetary policy? And Marissa, I'll, I'll turn to you first. I think we could get another rate hike um, later on this year. I think it really just depends on which way the data go. Um, inflation is coming in, but I don't expect that it's going to be completely linear, right? I think we are going to have some months where inflation accelerates here. And if that's particularly if that's core and it looks like it's coming from the service sector and if the job market stays the way it is, I think we could get another quarter point rate hike later this year. Mm -hmm. Chris, what do you think? Well, oh, first of all, do yeah. you know what the market is saying? I, I think the market uh, is consistent with what I just said. Pretty much. Roughly so. Yeah, I think right now it looks like for September, it's um 80% chance we stay firm, 20% chance of a hike. Quarter oh, point. is that right? Only 20%? Yeah, so pretty low. At the September think, meeting? Okay. Yeah, November, I think it's uh, pretty similar to that, maybe a little bit higher, okay. just given some of the uncertainty. Right. Um, I, I think uh, I think Marissa uh, nailed the point that there's likely to be some noise in the in the data here at, at minimum, and we could see inflation pick up, tick up a little bit before it comes back down. And I'm increasingly of the opinion that the Fed will hike one more time sometime in the fall, as I think about the political cycle. And I think that's uh, in for just to get it out of the way before you get into the, yeah, the, like a, the presidential election. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing they'd want is to pause now. And then let's say in the spring, we get to a four, four, four percent unemployment, four percent inflation economy. Well, then they have to start hiking again. That's tough, difficult. So there, I think the bias could be to let's hike one more time, even at the cost of, you know, increasing recession risk, just to ensure that inflation stays the course here. But, but let's see. I mean, Merce is right about the data. We have to Yeah. On that point, uh, I, I basically said the same thing on CNBC that you know they don't want to decide the next election they prefer right. or at least not be perceived as deciding who wins the next election and uh the uh, the host uh fired back well the you know the standard the fed's not political and i said well there there may not be political but they don't want to be politicized that's how i kind of i think that's how i responded do you think that's a fair response I think so, but yeah, I I reject the notion. Everything is political. Right? Everything is political. You reject right. that notion out of hand. Out of hand. Right? Any policy yeah. you make has some type of theory or underlying bent to it. So yeah, okay. So it may not be overtly political. Okay. Yeah. But right, there's some political consideration at, at a minimum. I, I I guess the 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 concern would be that they're not making. A decision that's appropriate for the economy for you know full employment and inflation at target because of politics you think yeah 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 i i think that's the case and i i think again one reason why they would prefer to hike earlier rather than later i think is to just get uh, that out of the way yeah yeah just not even create the uh the doubt that they might be politically driven uh, Marcel, what do you think i answered that reasonably well on CNBC because I was worried that, you know, maybe wouldn't come across well. I mean, what what do you think? I mean, I, it is what it is. Everything that happens is politicized now, okay. right? Yeah. Everything, yeah. even though the Fed is not a political body, 
everything they do is politicized. So to do anything during an election year will be hyper politicized. So I, yeah, I think that that's the correct response. Yeah. Okay. And let me ask you one more thing about the Fed. Going back to your point about the 2% target and the Fed obviously working really hard to convince people that they mean 2%. What do you think? Uh, Do you think they are steadfast at two or, um, you know, would they be okay with three headed to two or how do you think about that? I think that I I, I don't think they're going to keep doing policy action until they get to two because they clearly understand and from the statement that this takes time to work through and it works through with a lag. They also mentioned QE um, or, you know, uh, easing, right. Letting the balance sheet continue to run down. So I think that as long as I think he said we quantitative tightening tightening now, right. Right. Let let the assets on the balance sheet wind down even if they're not raising rates or did they say even if they're cutting rates, did, is that, I can't recall. Yeah. 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 Okay. So right. I think, I don't think that means they're going to continue to hike rates until they get to two. I think they may stop, you know, well before then, as long as they're confident that the policy actions they've taken are putting the economy on the trajectory to get there. What do you think, Chris, on that point around how relaxed are they going to be about to actually get to the 2% inflation target on core consumer expenditure inflation? I think that still remains the uh, mandate, but I think that if if it's two-ish, right, then, they, yeah. then they're not quite as aggressive. If, if the, Obviously, it depends on the trends, right? If it's right. gradually moving down closer and closer to two, then they let mm-hmm. the economy play out. If in, If it stalls out, if it actually starts to tick up meaningfully, then I think they... I don't think they accept even two and three quarter, right? Or two and a half. I think they'll continue to drive down if that's if that's the case. But particularly if, if the job th- market is really strong too. If what? Time. Particularly if the job market mm. in that mm-hmm. scenario yeah, right. continues to exactly. be really strong. Yeah. Right. Right. But if 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 the economy if the inflation rate's three percent and it feels like it's headed into the twos and the job market's not in getting stronger, it feels like it's holding its own or maybe, you know, slowly easing up. You think that would be, uh, they'd say, fine, I'm not going to raise rates because, you know, in that kind of environment or or would they still view that they need to raise rates to get that inflation back to two faster? I think, well, the timing of that could be interesting, right? Going back to the presidential election. What we were just saying. Yeah. I don't think they want to raise rates in 2024. So I think that maybe they do if this is the scenario we're in at the end of this year. Right. Okay. Okay. Chris, any? Yeah, I'd concur there. Uh, Concur. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's play the statistics game. Um, The game is we all put forward a statistic. The rest of the group tries to figure it out. By the way, Marissa, I I schooled him last week when you were away. I I did listen to the the podcast that I missed. missed that was a long podcast. podcast. Did you notice, man, that we, we were, he, Chris is so chatty. Oh. <laughs> it's like, a, a we long didn't even conference. get through all our questions. No, we didn't. Yeah. Uh, but the game is we, we put it forward to statistics. The rest of the group tried to figure that out through cues and uh, deductive reasoning and, and clues. And the best 
a statistic is one where it's not so easy, we get it immediately, and one that's not so hard that we never get it. And if it's apropos to the topic at hand, which I'm not sure what that topic is exactly, but you know, there's a politics, lot of statistics, right? Maybe politics. That's a good one. Okay. Oh, oh, that that's a hint right there. I nope. think. Let's <laughs> direct for you. Direct. Uh, okay. Let's uh, let's begin. And, the, and tradition is we begin with uh, Ms. Di Natale. Okay, four point six seven percent. That's uh, ECI year over year. No percent change year ago in the employment cost index for uh, it okay, is civilian but... workers. No. Wages and salaries, compensation. Yeah, but it's something, something more. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. It's all right. Chris is going to let me say it. Year over year growth in the employment yes. cost index. Yes. Private industry wage and salary X incentive pay. No, you're oh. really, you're really close. Oh, geez. But <laughs> really, close. no okay. No, it, oh, Chris, you want to? You uh, I was going to go with uh, non-union workers. Non-union. No. Oh, okay. So, Total so comp. that's not right. So it's not wait. Is it? Is it wages and salaries? It is wages and it is year over year growth in wages and salaries. X incentive pay. No. Oh, it's not oh, a particular segment. Segment. Oh, it's a particular segment. Okay. It's not. It's not total. It's not no, the it's whole not shooting. Total. No. It's not private industry. It's not civilian. It's no. something more specific. Hmm. One of the industries. I, th- I think it is non-union, but oh, it, pro- it could, it could be, be. It could be. But but. <laughs> okay, go ahead. What is it? What is it? It, it is. It is year-over-year growth in yeah. wages and salaries in the okay. second quarter for service sector workers. Oh, service sector. Uh, yeah. uh, okay. That's yeah. a good one. That's okay. a good one. Re- very relevant. I, I actually think 4.7 does apply to a lot of different. It, it, those, yeah. It those ECIs. Well yeah. 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 It, well, yeah. it well may. Well, okay, so, well, well, everything everything you, was 1% on a month over a month. Basis. Yeah. Did you notice yeah. that? It was really, <laughs> yeah. which, which by this, yeah, by yeah, the yeah. way, by the way, Chris, analyze that for me, please. 1% and a quarter is. Analyze. Oh, well, you know. Uh-huh, you're forecasting uh-huh. with the, uh-huh. the ruler uh-huh. here. Huh? That's four percent. And what's the bogey? Three point five. Three and a half. Okay. Yeah. And that's there's a like a band of uncertainty around that that's pretty wide, I would think, right? On both sides. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Okay. So uh Marissa, why'd you pick that? I picked it because of inflation, right? That that serve at, at this point. Inflation in service sector wages is something that is really, as we get past energy and food and supply chains and all these other things that have brought inflation down quickly over the past year, this is one of the sticking points is service sector wages. So there's progress here as well. 4.67% is high relative to where it was during the pandemic, which was around 3% in the quarters before the pandemic, but it's been coming down pretty steadily. For the past year, year ish, yeah, actually year, um, it peaked at five point three percent back in the second quarter a year ago. So it's been coming in as well, um, and it's the slowest rate of year-on-year growth since the end of twenty twenty-one. Right. So it's encouraging that here we're making progress as well, although it's it's slow, but it's there. Yeah, yeah, so, and just. And just- just to make sure everyone understands out there that the ECI, the employment cost index, what you're 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 putting forward here is the 
what we consider to be the gold standard for measuring wages and labor compensation because it controls for the mix of of occupations and industries and uh, the uh, right. uh, the other measures we have don't do that. So it's, yeah. the problem is it's lagged and we only got Q2 data, but but nonetheless, the, this gold standard is saying wage growth is still high compared to what you think it should be if you have a 2% inflation target. But, and by the way, not if you have a 3% inflation target, if it's a 3% inflation target. <laughs> You're right on. Job done. Job done. <laughs> mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Mission Yeah, mission accomplished. But but okay, uh, that's what the ECI is. Okay, good statistic, Chris. What's your statistic? All right, got uh, two here: ninety-two point four and fifty point nine. Okay. Are those uh, from? Are they? Are they? <laughs> Are they indexes? Are they from a consumer confidence survey? They are indeed from a Uh consumer confidence survey. Uh, Is one from the conference board and the other one from the UMich? Are they both? Are they both from the University of Michigan? Yes. Oh, see, I didn't look at that really. Did that? When did that come out? That came out uh, this morning. This morning, yeah, I haven't had a chance to look at that. Uh, And it was what ninety-two. 92.4 92.4 and 50.9 is one. I'll give you a hint because you didn't look at it. It's the, the overall um, index was 71.6. Okay. So one is current conditions. One is expectations. Nope. Nope. No. Okay. Uh, I'm relating it to the topic of politics. Oh, is one the perception of Democrats and one the perception oh, of Republicans. You got it. You that's got it. That's a good it. one. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, yeah, explain. So, so Democrats at 92 points. So the overall was 71.6, right, across the entire population. 92.4 for Democrats is is quite high. It's actually on par with what it was back in February of 2021, right? And I think we've talked in the past that this these sentiment measures are very sensitive to political party and who who is in control of the White House. So February 21, President Biden takes office and suddenly the Democrats are all optimistic. Uh, the 50.9 is Republicans, which is quite low, certainly much lower than the average, as I mentioned. So it's off of the bottom, which was 33 uh, last year, but still uh, relative to the cycle, right, that Republicans still view this as a very negative uh, economy. Right, just slightly better than what it was at the depths of the of the pandemic, not not close to where we were prior to the pandemic yet. So, so just to color these uh, sentiments, yeah, because we are going to turn to Matt Robeson soon and talk about the uh, policy and politics, uh, and that's a really good one because we're going to talk about the fracturing of uh, of our politics in that conversation. So the overall UMich University of Michigan survey it was seventy two. What was it? Seventy one point six, which was up a lot. Up a lot. Sixty four point four, so up seven points, which is a big deal. Big jump. Yeah, yeah, big deal. Still low by historical standards, but moving. And of course, the conference board survey of confidence, another uh, measure that's also jumped in the month of uh, of July, and that is actually quite high by sort. It's not high really high but it's above average right that was 117 i think yeah yeah something like that okay okay very good uh okay you ready for my statistic ready let's hear it very easy straightforward down the strike zone two percent that's target for inflation 
I well, yes. Uh, okay. That's Where's yes. I knew you were going to say that. It's not because that, <laughs> is it is it the the PCE over the past six months? No. Is it you're on the right track? It's is it the PCE deflator? Uh, well. It's from that. It's, it's from that release. It's some, yeah, it's not yeah. the. It's not the PC right. later. It's from it that is, release. Okay. It's from that release. What's the yeah. the most significant, most important inflation statistic for setting monetary policy? Core is it core PCE? Core, core PCE in the quarter annualized. Annualized. Uh huh. Mark loves to annualize everything. Wait yeah. a second. Yeah. Wait a second. Wait for it. Let me repeat that. The core. PCE deflator grew two percent in this in in the month of June. In the month of June, okay. So that's yeah. done. Yeah, that's I'm. That's what that you're was, saying. That was that. I'm just saying. Talk. In fact, you know, we've said mission accomplished a number of times here. I can feel that that's going to be part of the title of this. Of this oh, that will podcast that but, will jinx. <laughs> oh, that'll jinx it. Yeah, you're right. That yeah. might the last it. time someone said that it didn't go well. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> are you referring to President Bush? And, I am. Yeah. Oh, you are. Yeah. I forgot about all. Maybe, maybe we'll <laughs> skip that. Yeah, we'll skip that. Um, but it, I thought that's pretty cool, huh? Right. It is. I mean, because you know, uh, yeah, got to get some annual month to month, quarter to quarter annualized numbers at your target before you actually get to target. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is, this is, you know, along the way. So it felt pretty good. Hey, one, one question I don't know the answer to, and I don't know if you guys do either, but I'm going to ask it super core inflation. That's, um, you know, serve the, uh, the PCE deflator for services, X housing, X energy services. Mm -hmm. This is what the you know, chair Powell, Fed chair Powell is focused on. Is saying well, this is the thing the Fed can control. Do you guys know, you know, what that number was? I, I didn't. I didn't, I didn't look at it. Okay. All right. Yeah. No worries. Maybe, no, I didn't. Maybe, look. maybe we can find out. And we'll put that into the blurb so people. There you go. Because they're going to be awfully frustrated if we don't we don't give them that statistic. Okay. Very good. So before we um, uh, uh, move on, uh, probability of recession. Just uh, very quickly, um, what is the probability the economy enters into a national Bureau of Economic Research defined recession uh, between now and uh, and uh, July of uh, next year. Marissa, oh, she's oh, really well, thinking about thinking. it. I, I well, feel a cut coming. A cut. <laughs> I, it better not be an increase. Uh, it's not, but yeah. but now I'm a little worried about a government shutdown. Um, more so than I was. She's before. presaging the next conversation. <laughs> I am. Yeah. I can't help it. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's like a third. A third. Okay. And you were at 40%? At 40%. So in the high, your highest probability was 45 or 50? You were 50. My highest ever? Yeah. You were even I, higher. I think I was near I was like 60. 60. Oh, yeah. You were. You were yeah. at one point. Yeah. That's right. Okay. One third. Okay. Uh, Chris? I'm sticking with 50-50. Oh, damn. I can't wait. As soon yeah. as he cuts it below 50-50, we're going to have to do something. Uh, yeah, I'm at one-third as well. I, I agree with you. One-third. I feel, I feel. Oh, so you didn't move. You didn't move down. No, 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 no. Uh, Despite all this great data. That's no, because it's consi consistent with my forecast, Chris. 
<laughs> Stick in the script. Okay. Stick in the script, baby. And and you're right. You can't declare mission accomplished. And there and you're right, Mr. There's a lot of potential threats out there. You mentioned the government shutdown, the stresses on the financial system, something could break. We've got student loan payment moratorium coming to an end. Uh, you know, there, and those are the things that we know. It's the unknown unknowns that, you know, probably will come and bite us if if something's gonna bite us. But um uh anything else before we move on, guys? I don't okay. think so. Well, very good. We're going to bring Matt into the conversation uh, and uh, looking forward to that. And let me bring in Matt uh, Robinson into the conversation. Hey, Matt, how are you? Hey, Mark. I'm good. How are you? I am okay. I had a, I have to say, I had a, a tough a travel day yesterday. I was in uh, Milwaukee and um, for a board meeting. And, and just as I'm leaving for the airport, uh, it was canceled. <laughs> and they moved it to today, 24 hours later. So then I scrambled, got a, a card to take me to Chicago, O'Hare, and got on a nine o'clock flight last night, got in around uh, midnight. So I'm a little uh, discombobulated, uh, to, uh, but I'm here. I'm here. I made it. Have you, had, have you been lucky enough to avoid those kind of travel problems? I have uh, ever since I uh, took my consulting life down to a bare minimum. I, I travel a lot less, a lot less, a lot less time on airlines, and uh, I'm not sorry about it. Yeah, you're a lucky okay. man. A lucky yeah. man. So, so Matt, you have this great podcast that you were so kind to have me on. I think a couple times I've been on uh, Beyond Politics, and maybe you can take a minute and just kind of describe the podcast and sort of how you found that long, windy road to be. Uh, you know, uh, running that uh, that that show. Uh, I'd be little, sure. like to learn a little bit more about your background. Well, sure. The podcast is called Beyond Politics. I host it with my former boss in Congress, uh, former Congressman Paul Hodes of New Hampshire. He was the 2008 national co-chair for Barack Obama, uh, two-term member of Congress. I spent about a decade working in Congress. Before that, my background was uh, in economics. I was I was an economics major. Uh, at Swarthmore College, um, where my advisor was Fred Pryor for economic historians. Can anyone place that name, Fred Pryor? Ah, I, uh, Swarthmore is great, a great school. Great school. Uh, great of course, school. we're we're just down the road here. I'm in uh, Malvern and Westchester, so we're right down the road from Swarthmore. Fred well, Pryor? No, I can't. I can't. Can you guys? No, but no, we road. remember we we've had so many Swarthmore alums. Oh Swarthmore. yeah. Yeah, we're we're few but mighty. We yeah. so so Fred Pryor, if you've seen the Steven Spielberg movie Bridge of Spies, was the other guy in the exchange for the U2 down spy plane pilot Gary Powers. He was a an, an economist um studying Eastern European economies. He was part of that swap. Um and he settled at Swarthmore College. Fun fact for you, Mark. Um, that's only one of the amazing footnotes in his economic career. Mm -hmm. He also, and this story is so good that I hope it's true. I've never tried to interrogate it because I like it. He also, uh, is the reason that you constantly have traffic on the blue route. If anyone's traveled around Pennsylvania, yeah. you'll note that the blue route, which is a big highway in right. Pennsylvania, shrinks from three lanes to two and it's right around swarthmore college why is that it's because fred Pryor knew uh, enough about manipulating the federal government which is also my stock in trade to file 
environmental impact statement after environmental impact statement to try and stop the highway. He forced it to narrow to two lanes, which is why there's always a bottleneck there, just because he didn't want it to make so much noise around his house. That's why. (laughs) Fred Fryer is an amazing historic figure, and he was my first economics advisor. That's a cool story because, you know, when I was a kid, uh, the Blue Route had been built, but because of all these these lawsuits, it had not been open. So it was like this highway with nobody on it. We would take our bikes and we would ride along the Blue Route for really hours. And that, you're saying that's because of Fred Pryor. Fred Pryor, Fred Pryor caused uh, a lot of traffic congestion in the greater Philadelphia area. He was part of an historic spy exchange. His father tried to wall off his small town from the Great Depression by printing his own money. Turns out the Secret Service and the Treasury Department do not like that. Um, So he has hundreds of thousands of dollars of fake currency in his attic. He died a few years ago. So um, I digress. But the point is, I come from a background in economics. And um, a friend of mine at Swarthmore said to me, why are you going to major in political science major in economics you learn all the same stuff but better she was right um i went into economics but then i found my my way back into government and politics and now i host this podcast well it's great to have you on and there's a lot to cover both in terms of policy and politics maybe we can start with the policy first and then turn to the politics so I, you know both are pretty fascinating at this point in time but uh you know maybe we should do the eat our vegetables first and then and then turn to the dessert. So, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, kind of increasingly top of mind for us, uh, because, we, you know, obviously we're looking at this through the prism of what it means for the economy and, you know, the economy is vulnerable to anything that can go wrong because it's, it's pretty weak here is, uh, and right now the, the thing that's uh, kind of come to the fore is the potential for a government shutdown. Uh, how, how, in uh, just, a little bit of context, you, you, the, the lawmakers, Congress have to come forward with a budget by the end of the fiscal year, which is the end of September. The new fiscal year starts on October 1. And if they don't pass funding, uh, legislation to fund the government, it will shut down. And there's you know, a lot of uh, talk now that maybe that might not happen. Uh, what's your sense of things there? Is, is government shut down uh, your, you know, a realistic possibility here? Let me give you the bottom line up front, 90%. Ooh. Oh. 90% likelihood. Goodness. And I, I know I know Chris is usually the bear here, so um, yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to be more negative than, than he usually is. Um, so look, in 1976, we reformed the way that we do the budgeting in Congress. Since that time, um, this is what you might call an unsuccessful reform. Since that time, there have been 22 funding gaps in the federal budget, uh, four of which have led to significant lengthy government shutdowns, 10 of which have led to some number of federal employees being furloughed. Um, The conditions under which you might expect this to happen are not always the same. It, it, It tends to be more likely when you have a president and at least one chamber of Congress of opposing parties, which is the situation we have right here. But my real concern is around incentives. I mean, Mark, when you were on Beyond Politics, we were talking about the debt ceiling and the likelihood of going over the cliff. And my concern at the time was, hey, you know what economics teaches us? People respond to incentives and political memories are really short, especially about economics. And so there was an incentive in my mind for Republicans to want to go over the cliff because by the time the dust settled, all voters would remember is, hey, this cratering depression of an economy we're living through, I don't care whose fault it was. 
I just don't like it. I'm going to vote against the incumbent advantage Republicans. Didn't turn out that way. Kevin McCarthy probably thought that it was too much of a gamble and also probably had some major donors in his ear saying, please do not do this, Kevin. Mm. I think the incentives are very different when it comes to a garden variety government shutdown. There's already an inbuilt incentive in that debt ceiling deal where if they don't pass all of the individual funding bills that fund the government, there are 12 of them. If they don't pass all of them, then there's an automatic 1% cut to most government spending. This is something that Republicans want. And in fact, all of their political incentives, I'm not trying to be negative about them, um, mm. but all I'm a Democrat, but all of their political incentives line up to not want to vote for spending bills. Spending is bad in the Republican Party. It's not, it's not a political advantage mm. for you. So I think they have every reason to hold firm. We're not going to pass the spending bills on time, 90%. Hmm. So I, I I was under this um, kind of economist naive per, you know perspective that that one percent sequestration that you mentioned. So as part of the debt limit deal, they said, okay, you know uh, if you don't get this done by I think it's January one of uh, 2024, there'll be this across the board one percent cut in discretionary spending, non-defense and defense, and uh, of course Democrats don't want the non-defense or many don't want the defense either, but you know, they certainly don't want the non-defense and the Republicans, they may want the non-defense cuts, but they don't want the defense cuts. So at the end of the day, they'll come to terms before January one. So is that, are you saying that that's not likely or? Well, the last time we had one of these sequestration, and by the way, no one likes jargon um, except economists as much as politicians. Um, The last time we had one of these sequestration uh, inbuilt deals, um, we, we triggered it, <laughs> you know, like I, yeah. I don't think that that's a huh. strong enough stick in this carrot Ooh. stick approach. And again, I, I, I just think that the politics of this line up in, in a very bad way. And we have to remember that there's a substantial amount of leverage in a closely divided house of representatives for small cohesive groups like the freedom caucus. They, their perception was that Kevin McCarthy cut a bad deal on the debt ceiling. They thought they got played. They thought they got had. They thought they got rolled. They're not entirely wrong about any of this. And they would love nothing better than to extract the pound of flesh. Most of these members of Congress, again, they're responding to their own personal political incentives. In their districts, the only threat to them politically is someone beating them in a primary calling them a rhino, a Republican in name only, outflanking them to the right, and you know, voting against everything and causing a shutdown and fighting spending and being a burr in Joe Biden's saddle, it's not a bad thing for them. Hmm. Okay. So uh, we come up to the end of September, October 1, you're saying there's no deal, there's no budget, the government shuts down, and it's going to stay shut down until the Democrats relent or no, it goes all the way up to January one. And then then we get the sequestration and we go forward. Is that kind of sort of what you're saying? 
Well, what usually happens in Washington is, yeah. like I said, and I don't want to get into weeds, although your listeners, they're listening to an economics podcast. They're probably comfortable with weeds. Oh, they're um, deep down. They're 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 about as nerdy as they get. So feel free. Go, right. Go. It's like the 76ers GM likes to say, it's like, you're, you're comfortable being uncomfortable. So, I, I mean, <laughs> basically, we split up the discretionary spending of the federal government in Congress into 12 bills. It used to be 13. Then we merged some whatever 12 bills okay it's like the 12 days of christmas except the boring version and <laughs> you gotta pass them all and it's it's impossible because no one wants to be on the record voting for these things we used to have earmarks with little goodies tucked for each like a present under their christmas tree tucked into each of these bills little bits of spending in each individual member district and that kind of greased the skids Eh, we, you know, we we have them back. We didn't have them for a while. But even with that, it doesn't unstick things. So what Congress has done is they've crammed everything in, together into an omnibus. Let's do all 12 of these at once. Mm -hmm. Or or what you can do is called a CR, a continuing resolution, where you just say, remember what mm -hmm. we did last time? Let's just re-up. I'll just do everything same, same. Or you can combine those things into a cromnibus, which sounds like a cruller, but it's a lot less delicious. So could that happen? I mean, the way this usually goes is as the deadline approaches, yeah. pressure mounts, and people start to knuckle under. And eventually, after a short shutdown, you get there. So right. I'd say the most likely scenario, if I were forecasting, uh -huh. if I were being forward-looking, right. is we end up with a short a short enough shutdown till people start to feel the pain and then they'll work something out that looks mostly like a CR and a little bit like an omnibus and is a lot less delicious. Okay. And then do we still get that 1% cut at the end of the day? That's yes. I would say, I would say if I were a betting man, I would say yes. We really? love to bet around here. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Okay, I'd say so, yes. So it does feel like, Oh, so, Chris Strong probably, opinion, lightly held. Yeah, I got it. Got it. Okay. So it, it you know, that's some pretty significant fiscal restraint then. Yep. So well, can I ask uh, you an economics question? Yeah, far away. Right. I've just given you this input. You yeah. guys are the modeling and prediction experts. How are you factoring as you make economic predictions for 2024? How are you factoring the likelihood of government shutdown and sort of the the potential macroeconomic shock into your predictions? Well, it's not dissimilar to uh, we have to make an assumption in, in, along how this is all going to play out, similar to what uh, you know you just articulated. And in the kind of our baseline view right now, we have a short government shutdown, pressure mounts politically. They come to terms, pass a CR. And then ultimately come to a deal before we get the sequestration in this one percent cut across the board. If that's the deal, if that's what the, the if that is what plays out here, and it's you know a couple three four five six week kind of shutdown, that may shave you know maybe a couple three tenths of a percent off of GDP growth in Q4, which isn't great because Q4 is probably going to be weak anyway because you got student loan payments kicking back in and got a lot of other stuff happening. So it's not the greatest thing in the world, but it's not. You know something that pushes into recession, but if you throw into the mix what you just said, and you get this one percent cut, and it kicks in, you know, the beginning of next year, uh, you know, that makes me a little more nervous about you know what the world looks like in Q one, particularly Q one of next year, because that's that's pretty significant 
fiscal headwind, you know, that we're going to fiscal policy goes from being effectively neutral with respect to the economy to kind of a headwind to the economy again at, at kind of the wrong time. Chris, did I, is that roughly right? Is that? Yeah, I, I think yeah. I just heard you revising up your recession odds. So. Oh, well, no, well, that's what I heard. I, no, no, but that, I have to buy into the Matt's angst if, to, to do that. I haven't done that yet. Oh, I haven't okay. been convinced. Okay. Yet. Fair enough. All right. Just, just laying the ground. But I hear, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, that that's definitely a risk. Um, so, so Matt, you're as a betting person, you would say if you, if you were in our shoes and you had to put pen to paper to produce a forecast, you'd say, assume that 1% cut at the beginning of the year. Yeah. I'd say 90% some type of funding gap of some kind. Yeah. Okay. And then maybe 50, 50, on triggering the one percent, okay. um, so I would do a probability weighted, you know, like <laughs> whatever you're more coming in, you're yeah, yeah, some kind of like, yeah, yeah, econometric, okay. some something or or other. Got it, got it. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, let, let's uh, let's uh, move on to another policy question that's kind of top of mind, um, and that is this so-called term Bidenomics. Um, curious what you think about that term. Uh, not sure it's going to win any marketing awards, uh, but Bidenomics <laughs> is is basically Biden's economic po- President Biden's economic policy, and there's actually a lot to di- to chew on there because a lot of things got done in in the first two years of his term. Uh, but what do you think of Bidenomics, uh, both in terms of policy and, and and just maybe we can delve into the politics a little bit, and you know, what do you think about the politics of Bidenomics? I think that you summed it up perfectly. It is, and look, I have great respect for Mike Donilon and Anita Dunn, the communications gurus in the White House who are shopping this term. Um, I'm sure I've had the pollsters who work for this White House who work on these terms on my show, and I'm sure they've worked with some of the smartest people in the business like them to come up with this term. I question it. Mm. I I am not running out. I'm not going to put it on any t-shirts, baby. Uh, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not buying it. That said, I mean, the proof of the pudding is in the eating and darn, I mean, it's, it's hard to argue with the proposition that uh, maybe there's some luck here. Maybe there's some business cycle here. Maybe there's some good fed policy here. It's hard to argue with the proposition that things are fundamentally working. I mean, let's not forget that Donald Trump was the first president since Herbert Hoover in the depression to actually lose jobs. His net total on the day he left office was a loss of 2.9 million jobs. Yes, a lot of that was because of the pandemic, but our handling of the pandemic is also on his tally. So yeah, I chalk that up to Donald Trump. We were essentially from an economic standpoint in a car on fire careening over a cliff. And over the last two years, among all the leading economies of the world, the G7 economies, the US has had the highest level of economic growth. And over the last year, we've achieved the fastest decline in inflation and now have the lowest absolute level of inflation. Our bank accounts are between 10 and 15% higher on average. Wages have finally gotten out ahead of prices again, which means where we're, our real pay is going up. That's especially true for people at the non-manager level, people lower in the income distribution. Um, and look, I know there's been a lot of interrogation of the, of the figure, the fastest one-year job creation tally in American history. There, there, there's some question about that. But Again, it's it's hard to argue with the fact that we've added 13 million jobs. 
almost 800,000 manufacturing jobs, strongest manufacturing job performance in 30 years. I could go on and on about this. I mean, the record is incredibly strong. I would love to run on this record. It, but yeah, I he's not getting he's not getting any credit, right? Well, and I think that's because I think that's because first of all, I'm a fan of the movie Snakes on a Plane from a marketing standpoint. I've never seen it, but yeah. I can tell you what it's about. You yeah. know what it's about? <laughs> about snakes on a freaking Good plane. Point. Good point. You Good know? Point. And so right. like I you, you oh, here's another movie for you. Remember the movie Roxanne with Steve Martin? And he's in the bar and someone calls him, hey, big nose. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can yeah, come yeah, up I with something better. Yeah. I can come up with 20 yeah. somethings better. Do yeah. you think that the group of us like, you know, Marissa, Mark and Chris, we could come up with 20 somethings better? The Biden jobs plan, the Biden economy oh. rescue. Oh, you think it's know. all marketing? You think that's why he's not getting credit? I, I think, look, Biden, you're saying I hate Bidenomics. That's where he come up. Well, that's, of course, a play on Reaganomics, but. Well, okay. Well, so since you invoked Reagan, I yeah. think we're all at an age, maybe not Marissa, I'm not sure, where we can remember more. Definitely not Marissa. Not yeah. Marissa. Yeah. <laughs> You're so youthful at, at looking. Come on. So you guys remember, or your younger listeners will not remember this. You remember Morning in America? Yeah. Marketing. Marketing. What what did uh, Mel Brooks call it? Merchandising. Morning yeah. in America right. was, I'm not going to curse on your show. It was BS. It was complete and utter hooey. The the morning in America ad. The most it made famous, me feel good, though. I'll have to tell you, Matt. Of course, I mean, that's it to made your point. You feel to your good. point. Yeah. Of course, yeah. it made you feel good. It invoked like, don't you feel better than you felt? And everyone thought, oh yeah, I was feeling terrible. You know why people were feeling terrible? It was because they were remembering not the way things were in 1980 when yeah. Ronald Reagan won office. They were remembering the 1981-1982 recession. In fact, in 1984, when they ran that ad, unemployment was higher and inflation at absolute price levels were higher than they were when Ronald Reagan took office. Marketing yeah. people. Marketing. marketing. Interesting. Interesting. So you, you don't think it's you don't think it's the high inflation rate? Inflation's coming in, no doubt about it. It takes a little bit of time for people to figure that out. And also, even if inflation's coming back in, prices are a lot higher, right? I mean, people are paying a lot more for rent, for food, for everything, pretty much everything right. today than they were two years ago. So there's you don't think there's a more more fundamental reason for you know why people saying, eh, I'm not so sure about this thing called Bidenomics. One of the most well-known consultants in democratic politics is a colorful guy named Mudcat, Mudcat Saunders hmm. says people don't think in terms of rates, they think in terms of bills and economists and politicians hmm. like to talk in terms of rates. The rates of inflation are going down. I don't know what that means. I know hmm. what my bills are, right? Hmm. I know what the price of eggs is. Uh, and so I think you're right that it's going to be a hard sell. And I unfortunately was in the midst of helping to run a Senate campaign in 2010, the worst possible year to be a Democrat. Uh, and we were in the position, the economy was doing much better. Uh, than, yeah. But people didn't feel it. And so we were in the unenviable position of saying to voters, who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes? Now, I think that <laughs> Biden is currently in that position. But I think that there is a there is a marketing way to at least do better than Bidenomics. Yeah. Okay. Do, do can I ask? Do you have if you were king king of for the marketing day, would you have a better term for 
What would you have said to them? What, how I'm would workshopping you it. Um, yeah, you're workshopping it. Okay. I'm workshopping it. Mercy, I don't do you know. have one? Do you have one? Do you? No, you, but you, I agree. Who's critical of binomics as he is? Huh? I, I don't have one, but I agree that binomics, what does that even mean? Right? I mean, is that is that good? Is that bad? It's, yeah. I agree that it's terrible. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Um, well, let me ask you one more policy question before we move on to the kind of the politics. And that is kind of a longer term. Um, you know, if you look at the nation's fiscal outlook, it looks pretty dim, I'll have to say. Right. I mean, you go congressional budget budget office, CBO, they're the you know, nonpartisan budgeteers. And, you know, it, they do these long term projections under current policy, assuming no change in policy, which, by the way, uh, the Trump tax cuts for individuals, high income in the households and wealthy households, that will expire in 2025. So that that by itself, all else being equal, will help the budget outlook. But even assuming that, the outlook looks pretty bad, right? I mean, the nation's debt to GDP ratio is close to 100% already. 10 years from now, it's going to be 120%, close to. And then we're off to the races. And you know, the debt to GDP ratio looks unsustainable. Any prospect at all that we're going to, you know, address that? We, it feels like we got to at some point, but any prospect that we're going to do this in a reasonably graceful way, or not? Not it's going to take some kind of crisis for us to do this. Oh, you had me on the first part of that sentence up until you said reasonably graceful way. Reasonably graceful. Um, yeah. No, no. There's no, no. prospect. No and prospect. I'm going to argue to you that that's a good thing. I mean, look, hmm. we can barely agree to deals like the debt ceiling, right? And we face something. We, we all know on this in this group that the real problem here is the so-called entitlement programs. I know that's not a politically palatable term, but you know, we're talking basically social security, Medicare to some extent, mm -hmm. Medicaid obligations. Very little of this comes from discretionary spending, mm -hmm. especially non-defense discretionary spending. When it comes to Medicare and Social Security, we face something on the order of a $104 trillion 30-year shortfall, okay? About 70% about of that is on the Medicare side. And look what happened when Rick, Florida Senator Rick Scott proposed, hey, let's just sunset everything right. after five years. Well, the Democrats took about 0.2 seconds um, you know, some like, you know, I'm like the the complete reformed part of a congressional and political staffer. The larval form of me took about 0.2 seconds to look at that and say, great, you want to cut Medicare and you're from Florida. Great, genius. Thanks. And they jumped all over that. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and he had to walk that back pretty darn fast. The politics of this are brutal. And I think what it comes down to is the the bs asymmetry principle which is known online as brandolini's law which is the the amount of effort and energy expended to dis, to dispense bs is far less than the amount of energy and effort expended to try to rein it in it's just so easy so it's called it's called what law Brand, brandolini's law i don't know who brandolini, brandolini. Oh, this does everyone know this? I, I never heard this before. No. Brandolini's Law. This is a fun Google. Oh. Yeah. This oh, okay. Is a fun Google for you. Sounds like a Look, chat GPT to me. I, I mean, so. in, in economics terms, I'll probably screw this up because it's been yeah. 30 years since I was an econ major, but like the marginal cost of spreading demagoguery. Yeah, is sure. Zero, right. Yeah. The marginal right. cost is zero. And it's what the legal scholar Rick Hassan, another guest on my show like you, calls cheap speech. He wrote so. Yeah. 
the BS, the attacks are cheap speech. The explanations and the defense of a solution are very expensive speech. Mm. And that's, that's the basic problem. By the way, mm. um, this is the basic problem of my party, the Democratic Party. Everything we say takes a lot of words, a lot of explanation, and mm. we're always doing things like trying to explain quintile disparity. Um, you know, and like Republicans just to get to say things like um, four legs, good, two legs, bad on the economy. Like it's it's really not that hard. Um, they, they just they just have this inherent asymmetric advantage built in. Huh. Uh, and I like to rib them about this. It's just it's an easier move. Them. So the, the the shorter answer to that is, look, the the OISI OASI trust fund yep. can pay full benefits until 2033. And Medicare's hospital insurance trust fund, if I remember correctly, can pay 100% of benefits until 2031. So I would expect some action on this circa 2030. Got it. <laughs> All things being equal. So we got to be right up against the 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 the, the cliff, and that right. You've got to be able to run ads yep. showing Sandra a senior citizen who's about to lose her social security and say, unless Senator Zandi and Senator Di Natale do something about this, then Sandra loses her social security. And you, ha you have to have something that you can fight political fire with fire with. I, yeah. So I, I think there's just there's no way until the crisis is on our doorstep. Yeah, I, I, I'm very sympathetic to that. I'm, I'm even wondering if that's the real crisis, though, because at the end of the day, the government, federal government, th those trust funds are kind of faux cliffs, right? I mean, the, the federal government can redirect funds from anywhere and make sure that people get paid their Social Security their, and their Medicare and their Medicaid. So it's almost like it's, you got to come to a point where you know, interest rates are rising rapidly. Those bond market vigilantes, you know, back in the day in the 90s, well, the last time we did something significant in terms of our fiscal, long-term fiscal situation was under Clinton, Rubin, uh, and uh, Gingrich, I think. And that's because the bond market vigilantes were out. Every time it looked like the fiscal situation was going off the rails, long-term interest rates rose. And, and Rubin and could say, hey, look, uh, Mr. President, if we don't do something, you know, people can't afford mortgages. They can't afford a car loan. I can connect the dots politically. And then they came up with, you know, an agreement on, you know, welfare reform at the time. And, and the, the fiscal situation looked a lot better after that. I mean, there were a lot of reasons for that, but, in, but the, I think that that deal was a very positive deal. And it almost feels like we had to come back to that before we, you know, uh, you know, uh, interest rates are rising. The economy looks like it's going to crack. The, the, before that happened, before we actually cut a deal. Well, first of all, I think the four of us should form a rock band called Bond Market Vigilantes. I think we would sell. I think it would be great. There you go. We would, Good marketing. We have a very narrow, yeah. very narrow yeah. listenership. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting that you that you invoke that because there was in Democratic Party circles a real debate between the Bob Rubin School, which was the Bond Market Vigilantes. Um, and the Bob Reich School, it was the Battle of the Bobs, which mm -hmm. was much more, let's invest in the durable infrastructure, which is sort of what we leave to the next generation that creates long-term economic growth. And you were talking about Bidenomics before, and one of the aspects of Bidenomics that I'm curious for y'all's perspective on is, it seems to be a little bit more of a throwback to the Bob Reich School of, 
I mean, look at what he's done. It, it's investment in infrastructure. It's sort of a, a, a semi-industrial policy comeback with the chips bill and um, you know some of the some of the targeted uh, in, Inflation Reduction Act investments in high tech and manufacturing, I, and it seems to be his working thesis that that kind of approach is the better one. It seems like the Reich School is ascendant. Is that is that how you guys see it from an ec economics perspective? And and do you think that that approach actually holds water? Oh, well, I'll take a crack at that and I'll let Marissa and Chris weigh in. I, I think it's kind of splitting the difference between the Bob Reich and the Bob Rubin. I mean, it feels Bob Reich-ish in that, you know, these are pretty big pieces of legislation with lots of moving parts. You know, the Infrastructure, the CHIPS Act, the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, a lot, lot going on. But, it, you know, roughly speaking, they're paid for, right? I mean, you look at the, you know, the here's the money that we're going to use to pay for these things. You, and you, there's a lot of debate as, as to whether they're actually raising as much money as they think they're raising, you know, with the funding, the IRS, for example, to, you know, make sure that people pay their taxes or, you know, what's the take up on the tax subsidies and incentives in the IRA. It feels like that might be a lot larger than they thought it, CBO thought it was when they scored the bill, but, you know, abstracting from those issues, I think the objective of the administration was we're going to we're going to pay for these things, roughly speaking. And, and the, other, the other kind of nuance here is maybe it doesn't exactly happen in the next 10 years. But if you go over the next 20 years, uh, these are these are paid for. These are going to be paid for. So it's not exactly it's kind of splitting the difference. Uh, so uh, that that's kind of how I think, uh, you know, I think about it. Uh, uh, Chris, Marissa, any other perspectives on that? Chris, no. No, I, I, yeah, I, I think that's about right. I guess my question would be, what uh, benefit do the do they actually get in terms of credit with the voters? Right. I think we've been talking uh, along those lines. These are very long term uh, plans. I don't know that it the average voter really sees a whole lot of uh, benefit when they're looking at these infrastructure bills and seeing what the what it means to them. Right. 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 Well, I mean. I mean that's a tough one because these things play out over a long period of time. But but I think on the infrastructure that there they you know the politics can play pretty well, right? I mean and the administration is kind of using that as a hammer, right? Because every senator or congressman who voted against the infrastructure law, who's now out saying, oh, you know, I'm in favor of that particular project that's helping my state or my district, you know, the, the administration is all is already is kind of pounding the pavement, saying, hey, look. Look, look, this was pretty disingenuous, but yeah, but, um, but I, 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 uh, Matt, I, I agree with you. I think it's going to take pressure, you know, some kind of crisis before we actually kind of hold hands and decide to rein in spending and raise taxes at the same time. Um, let's turn to the politics, um, which are obviously pretty interesting. Let me ask you a, kind of a, a broader uh, political question around, um, Kind of our fractured politics. I mean, you know, it just—it's pretty obvious that, you know, uh, we've got tribes here: Republicans, Democrats, and I want to come back to no labels too and talk a little bit about that. That might be a new tribe. Um, and I guess the the question I have is: is this as as bad as it feels, or you know, the, the other way of thinking about this is? This nation, our our country has been kind of in this pitched battle since the beginning of time. You know, you go back to 
Tom Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. Those guys, if you go back, read uh, Chernow's book on Hamilton. The amazing thing is these guys were going at it, you know, really going at it, you know, back then in, in, in the way, uh, in using the, uh, the media at the time. So is this really different now or, uh, or, uh, is, is this just kind of standard or fair for, you know, what we've been through historically? If you take the historical comparison that you were just making, you know, Lincoln's team of rivals, Hamilton, Burr, in, in kind, it is not different. It's it's mm. the same set of themes, but it's a little bit like the difference between if your kids ever get into a fist fight and it's like, yeah, you know, no, no real damage is done here. And then if they grow up and like Mike Tyson is going at a Vander Holyfield, a lot of damage can be done here. Mm. I think the tools that are at the parties and the factions disposal have just become that much more powerful. And that's why we're seeing the fracturing. And there are, there are, data-driven signs that the fracture is very real and it, it's very wide. Uh, we have 3,143 counties in this country, and we can measure the number of counties in which a presidential candidate wins by a super landslide. That's at mm. least 80% of the vote. That, that proportion has jumped from 6% in 2004 to 22% in 2020, almost a quarter of- Say that again? Can, what, what 22%, percent. It's, a, it's a almost fourfold increase. Huh. 6% of counties, just a very, very small percent, one in 20 mm. counties in the US were super landslide. They were totally red or totally blue. Mm. Now it's almost a quarter of the counties in the US are totally red or totally blue. Another way to say this, this is one of my favorite statistics, is that in 2020, Joe Biden won 85% of the counties that had a Whole Foods, and only 32% of the counties with a Cracker Barrel. Um, <laughs> so put that in your econometric model. Yeah, and model that's it. pretty cool. You know, and, and you can see it in congressional districts as well. You know, you, you have these split districts where they vote for uh, a congressional member of one party and a presidential candidate of the other party. It was um, 86 districts in the year 20, uh, 2004, and by 2022 is down to 23 districts. So, you know, I can throw numbers at you. It's real. It's very, very real that, that we're this fractured, we're this far apart. Hmm. But what's interesting is I had the Princeton political scientist, Frances Lee, on my show a little ways back. And she made a really compelling case that in terms of the functioning of our institutions like Congress, we're still kind of getting stuff done. We're still holding it together. And look, mm -hmm. the first two years of Biden's presidency, we had, in my view, the most successful and productive Congress in 100 years, almost 100 years. Mm -hmm. Maybe the Great Society Congress in the mid-60s, maybe that would rival it. So, you know, I, I, I think we're, we're fractured, but we're still functional. And look, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. despite your skepticism and my skepticism, Kevin McCarthy brokered the debt ceiling deal. Yeah. Like we're, we're, we're exactly. holding it together. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Fundamentally, what do you think is behind this, this increased fracturing that you've observed? Is, is there one or two things you can put your finger on? There are three things. And uh -huh. I will tell you in a nutshell, my pet theory about this, which uh -huh. I intend to turn into a book. Uh -huh. um, and so 
I'm I'm glad I'm saying it out loud on your show now. Get it so out that, there. Yeah, right. So yeah. Copyright. Don't, no one's gonna yeah. want to steal this. Yeah. This is like yeah. really weedy. Look, in <laughs> in the 1980s, there was this concept of the Iron Triangle, which was a set of forces that locked out the people that were sort of a self-reinforcing set of power structures, you know, among defense and members of Congress. And I think there's a new Iron Triangle that has evolved in America uh, of three forces that I call dark media, dark money, and dark psychology. Mm. And in a nutshell, and they're all mutually reinforcing, and, mm -hmm. and in a nutshell, what we've seen is a massive influx of dark money, of money from sources that we can't track, that are not aligned with the views of the majority of Americans. Think about Harlan Crow giving millions of dollars to Clarence Thomas. Think about all of the all of the dark money ads that we see. There's dark media, which is media that you know, unlike kind of the media that most of us grew up with, you know, three channels. Th their incentive structure is built entirely around catering to a small sliver of America. And then there is dark psychology. This is a change that I saw mm -hmm. in the midst of my own politics career. When I started in politics, if I was in a meeting, let's say the group of us were political operatives and Marissa said, hey, we need to beat Chris, our rival Chris. He's a bear. We're, we're against him. We need to take him down. I said, all right, let's run an evil ad where we say, you know, evil Chris Doritos, some kind of a deep voiced ad. He stole, I don't, I didn't want to say out loud what the charge would be. He stole gummy bears from a candy store or whatever it is. And, <laughs> that sounds and, like Chris, by the way. Right, sure, saying. whatever it is. Well, Marissa <laughs> would come in and say, no, Matt, you, you can't do that because there will be a backlash. The, the voters don't like that kind of thing. It'll actually hurt us. More than, and I've been in consultant meetings where I was the one saying like, oh, let's say something terrible. And the consultants were like, no, 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 Matt, you idiot. Don't do that. That's, that's uh, very bad. No one says that anymore. Oh, there that's is, interesting. There is no floor that, that you can sink below. Um, and, and so I, I think that that's really what's going on is that um, we have these mutually reinforcing forces right. that are pushing us toward the fracture. Right. Yeah. That's That's a great book. That's going to be a great book. You, you yes. Gotta, do, you, do you have a title for the book? We can, let's critique it. No. Oh, crap. <laughs> Wait, I do. I have a working oh, title. Okay. I haven't pitched the book yet. Yeah. Um, I haven't pitched the book. Hold on. Um, yeah. Oh, here it is. The New Iron Triangle, how three startling forces are crushing American politics. I think that's great. I love that. There it yeah. is. Yeah. I, I, that's a, that's def, I'll definitely buy it. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just getting my, laying down my marker for I didn't say what, possibly useful. I didn't say how idea. much I'd pay for it, but I definitely, <laughs> oh, yeah. no, I'm only kidding. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a free ebook. self-published. I'm lying. I'm kidding. My, my, you can buy, I've, I've written a couple of books or a nickel on eBay. So, you know, so, uh, uh, but let's, let's now let's, uh, the, uh, you're, uh, the conversations got, got going in lots of different directions that are really great, but I want to end with, uh, this election that's coming up because this one feels and i say this with every election it seems like but this one really feels like a big deal you know because things can go in two different very different directions depending on how this plays out and um i, wa I want to get your sense of uh broadly speaking you know the contours of this i mean is it going to be biden v trump do you think that's 
what's going to play out here? Or could that be different? Could there be different people running for the presidency? And, and, and yeah, if you have a sense of, you know, who's going to be the victor at the end, love to hear that too. Uh, but any, anything you can, any color you can provide that would, that would be very valuable. Um, if I didn't have children, I would find this to be a deliciously enticing modeling exercise in like which, a which stochastic problem. We've just yes. <laughs> right. You know, because I, the, the problem is that the bad outcomes are, are genuinely bad. And I don't want to offend any uh, Republican listeners. You're, I'm sure, wonderful Americans. Um, I just happen to think that if Donald Trump is the next president, he will be the last president, that that's an extinction level event for America. That's that's my own personal political view. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, though, I will credit the other side, which is they probably feel the same way about Joe Biden. So the stakes are, are, are pretty darn high here. And there are a lot of factors. So your first question, is it going to be Biden versus Trump? That's overwhelmingly likely at this point. There is not a realistic prospect of Joe Biden failing to emerge as the Democratic nominee. Cornell West is going to be a little bit of a problem. Um, and, you know, there's I, I mean, it's but there, there's no realistic prospect there. Donald Trump, he is lapping the field. Uh, Ron DeSantis is on a steady downward trajectory since his formal announcement on May 24th. His polling numbers have gone steadily down and in inverse proportion, probably totally uh, inversely correlated, Donald Trump's numbers have gone up. Um, and I, I, do, I don't see at this point an exogenous event that would change that. That said, I would not have foreseen COVID. So, you know, things can change. Also, the demographically, these these two gentlemen are not the springiest of chickens. So, you know, there are kind of realities to, to deal with there. In terms of what's going to happen, um, that's, I, I will say this, Democrats are the masters of the circular firing squad. We love to get down on ourselves. We are inherently bearish on everything. Um, Chris, we, we will outdo you at every turn. Um, and so we don't like to take good news for an answer. But the best polling that's available right now has Biden out ahead by about seven points in a head-to-head -head matchup with Donald Trump. And he won by 7 million votes last time. And there is nothing that Trump has done that shows me where he's going to make up those votes. So that's the good news proposition. The bad news proposition is that in 2020, the difference in the election was 44,000 total votes in Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin. Margins of 0.3%, 0.4%, and 0.6% in those three states, respectively. Those margins are far less than what Gary Johnson got in 2016, the last time two historically unpopular nominees were facing off of the presidency. He got 3.1%. Jill Stein got about one percentage point. So there are factors. No labels could be a yeah. factor. Exogenous events could be a factor. A recession could be a factor. A shutdown leading to a recession could be a factor. So, you know, I, I, I would not feel any confidence 
in an outcome prediction at this point. Um, but you know, if I had to play with a, you know, if we were in a poker hand and I had mm-hmm. to choose a hand to play, I'd rather be playing Joe Biden's hand as of today. Got it. Got it. You mentioned no labels just very quickly. That's a, I, I think they don't call themselves a party, but it's kind of a movement. That's the, uh, Joe Manchin, uh, Joe Lieberman, uh, there's Republicans and Democrats more centrist, or at least that, that's kind of the way they position, try to position themselves. How big a deal of movement is that? Is that a, a big deal or something we should be watching carefully? Potentially, as the president would say, a BFD um, because of the yeah. factors of those margins. I mean, remember, American elections are won in the states. They are not a national polling outcome. Um, and so boy, talk about stochastic outcomes. You know, you've got these, you've got these 50 little um, modeling propositions to deal with, with, with very slim margins. And look, the, the, part of the reason that we have Donald Trump as president today is Jill Stein. Jill Stein's margin of victory was, was the reason that Hillary Clinton didn't win Wisconsin, or, or it was maybe about half of Michigan, not as clear in Pennsylvania. But there is a very good case to be made that without the third party candidates garnering such a strong support in 2016, we would have had a president Hillary Clinton. And so, yes, they are potentially a huge factor here. That said, it, it, it could be the kind of thing that doesn't work against President Biden. It, there could be candidates that would that would hurt Trump more. But as of today, right now, Democrats are the, the group that is more worried about a no labels uh, factor, and they should be. Hmm. Well, you should know we uh, we have an election presidential election model at the Electoral College. We do model it. You do. We do. We do. Actually, we've been running it for I don't know how many elections. Uh, we usually get it right. We got the Clinton Trump one wrong. Oh, uh, yeah, that we missed. Uh, and the last election, uh, the the Biden uh, Trump, we got felt pretty good about that. Uh, and you know, in terms of we picked states, and and we, uh, I don't think we got Georgia, but we got Arizona. I can't quite remember. But it, you know, as you can as you can imagine, we're economists, and everything feels like the economy to us. So it's based on economic factors. So at the end of the day, you know, I do think how the economy performs over the next six, nine, obviously 12 months is going to be pretty, pretty important to how this all plays out. So, um, so, so Matt, I, I really want to thank you for taking the time uh, with us. And uh, you know, there's a, a, a lot of time between now and the next election, a lot of things are going to happen. Can we have you back on? I'd be uh, delighted to come back on, uh, especially if I managed to roll out a book. Oh, let's, absolutely. Talking about, talk about predictions. Yeah. Let's let's put yeah. that at under 25%. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty uh I'm pretty gummed up with uh with doing podcasts. <laughs> I'm all in on that book. I that sounds like it'll be a fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Uh, pre-endorsement. You know what? I'm gonna have you write the blurb. Would you write the blurb? Absolutely. You count me in. Yes. Count all me right. in. Count me in. I, I love I'll be very happy to do that. So thanks, Matt. And um we'll uh, catch up with you soon down the road here. Take care now. <laughs>